0: Dr. Amalia Ghanias-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socio-economic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Johannesburg in South Africa is Professor Feroza Matara, who is the head of the Academic Division of Emergency Medicine at the Faculty of Health at the University of the Witwatersrand? And she also heads up emergency medicine at the Charlotte McKeke Johannesburg Academic Hospital. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Amalea, and to your listeners, and thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you on the air. To kick off with, let's start looking at some of the work that you do within the Emergency Medicine Division at the Faculty of Health at Vits. It obviously plays a vital role in developing emergency medicine practitioners and evolving research to effectively and efficiently serve the acutely ill and injured. So please share with us some of the details of of your day-to-day and responsibilities that come with holding this role.
1: All right, thanks. So, as as the academic head of of emergency medicine, my primary role, as you said, is teaching and training of registrars or doctors, junior doctors, to become emergency medicine specialists. Um, there's also a component of teaching undergraduate medical students, uh, you know, with basic emergency medicine skills. But the main focus is on on the specialists and the training of of the registrars um essentially that involves getting them through a four year program through uh, you know during which time they rotate through different departments and different hospitals uh, learning different skills and my role is mainly to coordinate that and part of that training involves in doing an immit with uh, a thesis that that goes with that and and that's what they have to graduate with from the university point of view, and then they do a clinical exam, which is set by the College of Medicine of South Africa. But I think I see my role as much more than just teaching them the academics and and learning skills. I think my role and the focus that I have is also personal growth, it's emotional growth, It's supporting them through life's challenges that they face along the way. Essentially, not only to be a successful specialist, but to be a successful person in their own right, with morals, with values, with ethics, that they can play forward, essentially, in their lives. And that no matter where they go, they take those lessons learned with them. It's not just training doctors in South Africa. We have what we call a supernumerary program, where we're training doctors from the rest of Africa. We've graduated quite a few Nigerian doctors, the DRC, Palestine, Libya, and they come largely sponsored by their governments. They train, they follow the same program as our doctors do, and then once they've graduated, they go back home. So we've actually just had three of our our Nigerian doctors go back home and start A faculty of emergency medicine at the university Uh, we've got the same in zambia so it's a lot more than just training with graduates if you want to
0: that's fantastic to see that you having this impact not just on our country but at a continental scale and I particularly liked what you said in terms of being able to create and cultivate soft skills amongst individuals because that's really the glue that holds everything together. You can have the, the the book smart, but being able to have those soft skills, particularly in in medicine, I'd imagine be very, very important with with patient bedside manner.
1: Yes, no absolutely, you know I think most people that get into medicine have the academic. Uh, acumen to be there. You know they they get selected on the basis of their academic achievement, but as I said, it, it's more than that. It's having the EQ and the the compassion and the caring that makes the difference in the long run.
0: You've explained the role that you take on at Vits as as an academic, but one of the other hats that you wear, which I think is very very important, is at Charlotte Maxeke Johannesburg Academic Hospital which currently is one of the designated hospitals responsible for managing COVID-19 cases in the Gauteng province. To date, globally, there have been 4 million infections and 1.1 million deaths from COVID-19. And in South Africa, the most recent stats this week have indicated that there's been around about 700,000 cases and approximately 18,000 deaths. So firstly, as a doctor and educator of medicine, How has life changed for people in the face of COVID-19 outbreak?
1: Sure, it's made us unlearn and rethink everything that we've done previously. While we have always been a designated hospital for all the hazard diseases, you know, the ebolas and the the hemorrhagic fevers, we've always had patients. We're not on the scale that we've had with COVID, obviously. So we've always had a disaster medicine plan and program in place that we tested regularly but you know obviously this has meant we've had to rethink everything that we've done before um you know right from from the entrance of the hospital the way we've treated patients the way we've protected our staff simple things social distancing on a ward round uh you know have a teaching round around the patient and we normally just all huddle around the bed and a table and have a discussion. Now we've had to ensure that you know there's that social distance so that we could make sure everyone is safe. So it's it's really largely made us reevaluate much of what we were doing. And I think going forward, it's also going to mean a totally different way of doing things in the future. The old standards and the and the old old ways of doing things are no longer. Practical and acceptable. Um, We started our our COVID interventions as early as January before they were even designated hospitals when the outbreak was still largely contained in China. And, you know, we followed it closely, and a group of clinicians uh, that I work with and and the emergency department, internal medicine, and ICU got together and we said, look, it's only a matter of time, you know, the rapist was spreading before it hit South Africa, and our first meeting, in fact, was at the end of January, and we started already planning, you know, putting things in place and drawing up protocols for screening and how we would, you know, uh, eliminate patients who or um, or rule out, you know, possibilities of infections and things like that. So by the time we got to March the 7th, when we received the first public sector patient in the country, we already had significant amounts of of processes and protocols and changes that we'd already put in place. From then, it was just a matter of escalating all those plans as the numbers increased. Obviously, we've had to re-engineer our emergency department, We've had to put in areas which would deal strictly with COVID and separate out because we were still getting our normal patients, albeit not the same numbers that we normally did. So we separated out the COVID from the non-COVID patients. We put up tents outside the emergency department, which we used initially largely for screening and swabbing patients. Other things that we did in the hospital was cancel all elective surgery, review how patients were coming to the pharmacy to collect medication because obviously they couldn't use public transport and things like that at the time. We had to screen all 4,500 plus of our staff members every single day that they came to work. So there were lots of challenges and I think amongst them, staff here And, um, you know, anxiety, especially if you think about an emergency department where you don't know what's coming through the door. And literally every single one of those nurses, doctors, porters, cleaners would potentially be taking this bug home to their families, to their parents, to their children. So there was a fair amount of anxiety that went with it.
0: Those are tremendous logistics that you've just shared with us, screening four and a half thousand people every day as they come into work, looking at how you displaced and cancelled some of the elective surgeries. And today, as we move ahead, you are juggling the day to day of normal cases that come in, and you're still managing COVID-19 cases simultaneously. Yes. So the, the numbers of COVID patients have significantly
1: decreased. I think if we're seeing at the moment one or two a week, that would be a reasonable sort of um, judgment of what, we, what we're what we getting from COVID. The vast majority of the patients we're seeing now are really ill patients who couldn't access or didn't access healthcare during you know, that major COVID pandemic period, sort of May, June, July timeframe. So they are now coming in, obviously, you know, cancer patients that have relapsed their treatment, medical patients who haven't had medication. So they're all relatively more ill than they would otherwise have been had they presented. But a lot of them was fear and, you know, lack of of access, basically, um, during that, that critical time. So we're we, we now seeing the majority of our patients being really,
0: ill you know, medical patients, but not COVID. So the pandemic had a massive impact, not just on what could come through the door as COVID, but also the implications on people's general health, because they were holding off on coming through, as you say, it, it, from fear, from accessibility points.
1: Absolutely,
0: one of the things though that you did and your your team was to focus on the protection of healthcare workers and i believe that you had developed a a device which helped limit contact tell us more
1: okay so essentially when we realized at the beginning as i said in january we realized that this was droplet spread or aerosolized at the time wasn't sure And we needed to look at how we would protect our frontline staff. One of the things that you would do for a patient in respiratory distress or or struggling to breathe would be to intubate them to put them on a ventilator. And that essentially entails putting a tube down the throat so that you protect the patient's airway. And as you can imagine, because you're working in the mouth, in the the, airway, with suction, with oxygen, it's a highly aerosolizing, generating procedure. So we looked at what was around, and there wasn't much. Uh, There was a Taiwanese doctor who developed a very simple square box that he put over the head of the patient, but we didn't find that that was very practical or user-friendly. So a group of consultants in my department and myself got together, and we took a cardboard box and cut holes in it and put covers you know, with pieces of paper on it and we, we figured that this might work. A good we
0: prototype.
1: Got, yeah, that was our first prototype, absolutely. And um we then got uh my brother actually came on board, he's a cardiologist and he said, Oh well what are you going to do with this box? So I said, Well we're looking for money to, to have it, you know, manufactured and he said, Well okay, give me this stuff and I'll have it made for you. So he actually made us the first prototype that came off the box. Um, we then reviewed it and looked at it and tried it out and made a few modifications and then got hold of Spire, which is the Ren Mutual Bank uh, fund for the pandemic. And they actually came on board and got Paramount un- involved to manufacture it. And Paramount's day job essentially are to manufacture Military uh, helicopters and, and equipment. So, you know, it was bringing together a whole host of different people who had absolutely no mm-hmm. link in terms of medicine, but ultimately were able to produce this device. And essentially, what it was was a perspex block that could collapse for storage, and we would place this over the head of the patient with the doctor doing the intubation at the, on the one side, obviously facing the patient, and with holes on that side, with the doctor being able to protrude their hands through there and reach the patient. So essentially preventing any of those errors or drops spreading into the atmosphere or onto the doctor, thereby protecting them. And I must say, in in the entire seven months that we've been dealing with the pandemic, We have had a total of only six doctors infected, and that was at the peak of the pandemic in June. Other than that, we haven't had any of our staff COVID positive. So I'd like to think that it did make a difference.
0: That's a great testament to the the protection of staff in the facility but also a a wonderful testament to the openness of collaboration and looking at bringing in multi-parties from different sectors of of industry to pull together and to develop something that's effective.
1: Yes. No, look, I think that's one thing I have that we all have taken out of this COVID pandemic is that, you know, the most unlikely sources of support and inspiration and uh, collaboration has come on board. You know, it's just been uh, really great to see the willingness, particularly from the public sector uh, and the private sector, where, where usually the two didn't really get on uh, in terms of, of initiatives and getting things done. But COVID has actually brought a lot of people together that wouldn't otherwise have become engaged in, in any kind of project or collaboration. So it's been really
0: positive in that regard. Well, I hope that's one thing that will stay in play after the pandemic leaves us. Absolutely. The last thing that I wanted to talk about concerning COVID-19, it's had tremendous impact both socially and economically across the globe, and there will be long-term devastating consequences. But some countries at the early stages, seem to be coping better than others. And one of the things that struck me when I read this particular article was that it commended New Zealand, Finland, Germany, and Taiwan on their responses. And when I looked further into that article, the beauty for me, with us being a a gender-based program, is that those countries are all led by women, like Jacinda Ardern, Sana Marin, Angela Merkel, Tsai Leng Wen. And female management characteristics like collaboration, transparency, empathy, and delegation were credited for creating a safe base that helped them on their road to recovery. Could you share some of your views on women in leadership So
1: absolutely, I always say I'm biased and I'm too bad if you know it's not going around very well, but I think female leaders are more pragmatic, they're more practical, and they as you said, able to instill the empathy and the caring. Uh, you know, that that's needed in, in a crisis. I think uh, definitely they're more transparent. And one of the things that really strikes me is that I'd like to think we make decisions that are more for the better of people rather than just for the politic and for the, the publicity gain. And we also listen. You know, I think we, we make better listeners and better carers. So the fact that so many women, uh, you know, countries, as you said, that have had women have have put into practice what the scientists have said we should do. I mean, we just need to look at at North America at the moment and what's happening there. Uh, And in the UK, you know, where they have really uh, two very strong-minded male leaders and, and what a mess their countries are in in terms of the COVID pandemic. So absolutely, I think women will make better
0: decision makers in terms of dealing with not just COVID, generally. There's definitely a consultative process that seems to take place and acknowledging different viewpoints, really listening. Like you said, that was one of the core skills on listening to people. In your opinion, what areas do you think we need to build on the most to help benefit women optimally in the future?
1: One of the things we need to overcome, particularly in South Africa, I think we have two big issues that are always in the background. One is patriarchy and the other is gender-based violence. I think with both of those, underpinning any kind of career or pathway that that a female needs to follow, those things are, are always in the background. And if we can install in our very young female learners at school and even before school that they have a self-worth and that they have a role to play and that just being a male who is around you doesn't give you that right to determine or to dictate what your outcome will be and that they can be any and do anything that they want to. If we can get our girls' children To believe that, I think we're going a a, a huge way to overcome those hurdles. We're still overcoming all the apartheid uh, discriminatory practices and attitudes. Uh, we, We still have a long way to go to overcome the patriarchal way of thinking. And that's across all societies. You know, it's not just a black society thing. It's across all our communities where that's still very much an issue. If I think of when I was at medical school in the 80s, we were a class of 220, and of that, maybe 40 were were female, and maybe of that, 20 were black. And if I look at the classes now, at least 50% or more are female, There's a lot more transformation. The challenge, obviously, that we have is that we have children from very diverse backgrounds, and underprivileged backgrounds, and they they don't always cope well, um, you know, on getting into a university environment. Uh, If you think of a child who comes from a really poor rural background who's never worked with a computer and is now in in a medical school and has to deal with online lectures, you know, the challenges are huge. So I think our role as teachers and as educators in that environment is to help these young
0: learners and
1: young students overcome those difficulties.
0: And when you were talking about the effects of patriarchy and gender-based violence, it's not just changing attitudes across communities, but it's also changing attitudes on a gender level because sometimes I think women are as guilty as men in terms of perpetuating old psyche. Absolutely. And, you know, it's also the way we've been brought up. You
1: know, if you're married, accept what your husband, you're in your husband's family and you in his home. Accept what's, you know, don't be rude, don't be disrespectful, don't fight and argue back. And, you know, you don't have to do anything aggressively or violently, but there are ways of standing up to it and actually saying, no, no man will do that to me. You know, no, I, I will not stand back just because you're a male and you're telling me to. I think I agree with you, it's it's hugely, but it's such an ingrained um, sort of ethos in our social psyche that it's slowly, I think, unravelling, there's coming uh, a lot more of an awareness in our younger generation that this is no longer uh, acceptable. And I think things like the Me Too movement where women have finally gotten up the courage to speak out against powerful men who have been in abusive positions is is helping that to to say, well, it is no longer acceptable and it's okay for me to talk about it.
0: Prof. Mathorek, you're a strong woman. You have made it in the medical field, not just as a doctor, but also as an academic. And when I look at your profile, it shows all of your achievements, it shows your commitment, and ultimately, your education has lined this path for you to be able to hold several important roles. And in doing so, you've become a role model to young women, not just in South Africa, but across the continent. STEM subjects, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, have been cited as pivotal for jobs of the future but when we look at various reports, it shows that women are underrepresented in these disciplines, which is obviously going to create a gap and disadvantage when we see jobs of the future and work opportunities which have changed dramatically. What's your view on this? So again, stereotypes and prejudices that have led us
1: to that point. If you think of when you were growing up, following a career in engineering or in computer science or something was not seen as a career for a woman to do. You weren't even considered for them. But I think that's slowly breaking down. And it starts again, as I said, at our primary school level and even before then, stereotype of little girls playing with dolls and little boys playing with cars uh, is a typical thing. you know. And if you get a little girl playing with a car or taking apart a Lego or something, that's kind of frowned upon. So it starts at that level, if we can engender our young female children to believe that it's okay for you to play with a car and take it apart and put the wheels back together and play with a Lego and create a robot and do things like that. It starts at that level to break down those stereotypes. I'm very really happy to note that you know, if I walk around on campus, for example, to note that there are a lot more female students in the engineering department, in the IT department, in the computer science department. While it, it's not at a level where we want it to be, I think there are small inroads that are being made. But again, it's it's up to us who are the, the female leaders particularly, because it's not going to be the men that are going to let you know let us happen. It has to be the female people that are in positions that can make the difference to, to make that difference. So take in more female candidates, mentor them, guide them, you know, encourage them and support them. Because, you know, people forget that as a female student, you have more than just your academics at stake. You still have to be a housewife or a mum or a daughter looking after parents or, or things like that. So those challenges are underlying. I mean, if I think of myself as a university student, I looked after my brothers and a cousin and used to come home and cook and clean and do washing and ironing and self-study. But you did it because you you knew you had to. So it's up to us to support that in other children and recognise that they may need the extra
0: support. Women's second shift, as I call it, is sometimes not taken into consideration because you've got to uh, contend with your, your day job and then you have to contend with your home job. Absolutely.
1: And I think that was largely forgotten. And, you know, in, in, in our communities and in our suburbs and, and old locations or informal settlements, you know, you, you think of the number of young girls who've had to become parents overnight to children or siblings where the parents have died of HIV and AIDS those child-headed households, there's huge responsibility and and expectation from those children to provide for a sibling or or a home for a child. And they still have to go, if they're lucky enough to have gotten into a university, still have to go and go and study and come home and do, as you said, all the rest of it, and then still sit sit down and study and deliver. So there's huge expectations from them in those conditions.
0: I really have an appreciation for the load that women bear. Looking at yourself, you mentioned if we see the landscape today in academia, you've probably got about a 50% even split between men and women. When you were attending university, there was an 18% split between men and women. Please tell us what role education has played in your life.
1: Oh, um, I think ever since I can remember, my
0: dad was a teacher.
1: And ever since I can remember, it was drummed into us that you had to study. It was the only way that you could get yourself out of the rock that was apartheid. Um, It was the one thing no one could take away from you was my, my dad's favorite thing. Study and get a degree and improve yourself because that was the only way you were going to improve your quality of life. And I think if we're talking women particularly, it's essential because if you educate a female, she's going to be a mum to children who she can set an example for. She elevates their socioeconomic economic status because she's now in a position to to feed them and clothe them and provide a, a better home for them. So I think for for me, just having parents that have always instilled in us, you know, growing up during apartheid, and and parents that always instilled in us the value of education. Um, It was always a priority. It wasn't a negotiable in our home. You didn't have access to lots of all the luxuries because, you know, my parents were struggling and they worked and my mom literally had a job, came home, did some baking, used to sell cakes and biscuits and things like that to make some extra money to send up to university. And obviously, at that time, bursaries and scholarships and all that were very limited for any non-white student. We were told, you know, you're getting an opportunity to go to university. You have one chance. And if you don't succeed, you have to come home because there wasn't money, spare money to keep you there. So you knew you had to make things work and, and be a success at it. Um, and it's also, I think, instilling the values that um, I was the eldest in my family. And as the eldest, you, you almost had to, to be that example to the younger siblings to, to be a success and to, to provide support then when you were done for the younger siblings. I think the the black text that they talk about has been around for a lot longer than people would like to think about. But uh, definitely for us, and, and I think having learned those values, i found that, you know, it's been something I've passed on to my children. And, you know, everyone says you don't always need a degree to be successful. And that's true, because you can learn a trade and you can learn a skill and still put it to good use. But that's still part of an education.
0: You are absolutely right, It is all about education and furthering yourself and development. You've given us some insight in terms of your formative years. One of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've made tremendous achievements in their respective disciplines is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. A lot of people talk about hard work or a particular person that influenced them. In your opinion, what would you say have been some of the key drivers to your success?
1: I think without a doubt, my parents, uh, my mum and dad, who installed in us values of giving back, of being appreciative of what you have, of supporting and helping where you can. Um, My my dad always said to us, "You, you can be a street sweeper. There's no embarrassment in being a street sweeper, but you make sure you're the best street sweeper that you can be. So, you know, it's it's lessons like that that have driven me throughout my career, throughout my life, um, simple things like overcoming the imposition of apartheid, not being able to go to a library and, and borrow a book that I loved reading. And because my parents had limited funds, there wasn't always money to go and buy a book, but we couldn't go to the public library and borrow a book. And things like that spurred me on. To say, well, one day I'll be able to buy my own books. You know, if I work hard enough and I earn enough, I'll be able to buy my own books and make a difference and give books to children who who, who don't have. So I think for me, values that would enable me to give back to those less fortunate. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I did do medicine and I've stayed in the public sector throughout my career is that I've always felt that you you do it for the right reason so you, it wasn't just oh well you know doc being a doctor in in any community especially in the 70s 80s was a very high prestige job and you know you were looked up upon by your community and by the people around you but it it wasn't that it was being able to say i've got this job i've been lucky enough to to be uh, privileged enough to have been able to do this, how do I give it back, and how do I play it forward to people who are less privileged than, than I am? So I think definitely one of the, the key drivers and the key inspirations have been my parents, and part of one of the things that almost encouraged me or, or, or pushed me to, to carry on was to make them proud, and for them to be able to see that their hard work and their sacrifices and and what they've put in actually
0: bore fruit and and paid dividends.
1: So definitely they were instrumental in me becoming who I am.
0: That's a wonderful tribute to your parents. And besides your mum, who would you say have been some of the other strong women in your life? Um, I
1: think, you know, I I looked at people like my great-granny who was at a hundred and three when she passed away, but at ninety six, ninety seven was still in the kitchen cooking and still ruled the, the rooster, if you will at, at my granny's house. Um, you know, people like that, if I looked at as growing up, you know, people like Winnie Mandela and I know there's lots of controversy about her, but if you you, you know what we were exposed to as children, and and our hardship and the way she sacrificed and the way her children struggled. And, you know, people like that were were always an inspiration to look up to in terms of that if you believed in something strongly enough, that you would be prepared to sacrifice and struggle through whatever was placed in your pathway. So definitely there were women in my family that that were an inspiration. I mean, uh, I had aunts and, and grandparents who were like the first Indian woman to have graduated at, at a college, uh in in Durban, you know, the first Indian woman that played a violin or things like that. So there was always someone in the family and outside that would be that, that inspiration for you to, to follow.
0: There seems to be great female genes running in your family line.
1: <laughs> Um, I'd, I'd like to think so. Hopefully I've carried him through.
0: <laughs> We've talked about your development. We've talked about those formative years. Becoming a doctor, what would you say has had the biggest impact to make you the person you are today?
1: Um, look, I, I think growing up in a apartheid was definitely one of them. You know, at 13, I realized that uh, I was not seen as other people of equal worth. And, you know, I was being judged because of my color. And, you know, I came from a relatively protective Indian home. So it took a while for that to, to sink in. And, you know, realizing that at 13 years old that I wasn't good enough or, or um, you know, equal enough to fit into to any society. Uh, I told you about not being able to get books. I couldn't go to the public library because I wasn't white. Um, having to get ministerial consent for um, an application to study at WITS in 1982, uh, because obviously it was still a a white university at the time. Um, So those are are things that, that as a a teenager, uh, made me realize that I had to do something that would make a difference, that would change things. Um, I think another pivotal moment was the birth of my daughter's, and realizing that I was no longer living a life just for myself, but that I was responsible for making the world a better place for my daughters, you know, going forward. Um, and as a single mom, bringing them up and trying to instill the values and, and the morals and the, the the positivity that they could carry forward. Um, I think one of the, the other important things was the death of my dad a few years ago you know him and i had a very close relationship and he always had words of wisdom you know like i said study it wasn't it, it's the one thing no one can take away from you uh, be the best sleeper you could be those are things that i, I carry with me but made definitely realized the importance of faith and belief and that there's always a higher power in, in your life that controls what happens and what you do, and that whatever happens in your life happens for a reason. You may not see the reason or it may not be apparent to you at the time it happens, but with hindsight, after a while, you, you actually look back and you think, oh, that's why that happened. It was so that I could learn this and this lesson. So I think there's always uh, a value and a moral and a, a, a lesson to be learned. And one of the most important things I think I've realized or that I've learned as I've gotten older is that by giving, you actually receive so much more. So whether you give of your time, of your knowledge, um, of your caring, and, and giving without expecting anything in return has brought me the greatest joy and having a doctor come back to me you know five six seven years after they have qualified and say to me oh you remember prof you told me this and this and this and now i realize why it was important so those, those moments make it worthwhile doing what i do
0: thank you for sharing that introspection of your life as well as lessons learned and the value of giving and the receiving part sometimes coming much, much later, but still creating this aspect of of worthiness and and wellness. And lastly, as we close out today's conversation, could you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to girls and young women in Africa that are listening to us?
1: Yeah, I think um, as girls and as young women, We need to realize that you have the potential to be anything you want to be, that you have it within you, you have the strength within you. And sometimes even when you think you don't have that strength, you know, you're in a situation and you amaze yourself at what strength you can draw upon. I think you need to appreciate that you're special. And in this climate of gender-based violence and discrimination, that. You do not have to accept that, that you, you can say no and you determine what you have in your life and it can't be imposed on you. And, and I think as older women, it's up to us to install those values into the younger generation.
0: Thank you so much, Prof. Matara, for those wonderful words of wisdom and inspiration. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today.
1: Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have the chat with you, Amalia, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate
0: it. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, and we have been talking to Professor Feroza Matara, who is the head of the Academic Division of Emergency Medicine at the Faculty of Health at the University of Witwatersrand, and also heads up emergency medicine at the Charlotte McKeke Johannesburg Academic Hospital.